Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 203, I believe. Uh, Just wanted to thank everybody for your uh, continued patience over the last couple of weeks uh, as far as shows arriving late and uh, mistakes being made within the recording and that sort of thing. So uh, I did want to say before we get into today's episode, I wanted to tell you that uh, More Than One Lesson is brought to you by Faith Life TV a new streaming service for Christians. Uh, Faith Life features interviews, dramatic films, biblical resources, and documentaries. Speaking of which, the powerful documentary Bonhoeffer is now now available on Faith Life TV. A film detailing the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his decision to actively fight against Adolf Hitler, inspiring, challenging, and ultimately fascinating Bonhoeffer is available exclusively to Faith Life subscribers. But the good news is that you can get Faith Life TV free for for one month. Just go to morethanonelesson.com and click on the Faith Life ad on the side. That'll take you where you need to go to sign up for Faith Life and enjoy your free month of great content. Plus, it's only $4.99 per month after that. It's a great deal. Uh, this episode is also sponsored by DigiCycle Me, helping churches and ministries maximize their potential through social media and content coaching. Just go to morethanonelesson.com and click on the DigiCycle Me logo on the side to find out how best to reach your ideal audience. Okay, so... Now that that is out of the way, I probably shouldn't act that way, given that they have paid me to say things. Um, but uh, and you may notice, uh, even I'm noticing that I'm a little hushed in my tone, and it's because people are sleeping. Um, this is not one of my 5 a.m. late night records, but I am not recording at home. I am recording in the home of my uh, co-host and his wife and his adorable young child. Are, are, are asleep in their beds. And so I don't want to wake them up with my loud game show host type voice that I have come to really detest over the years. Uh, but uh, so hopefully we don't put anybody to sleep. I do remember an early iTunes comment that said, uh, <laughs> that said it said, a warning to sleepy listeners. Tyler's uh, voice is very soothing. And I remember hearing that and thinking like, I guess that's good, but probably not, right? Um, especially if somebody's driving. So, um, okay. But, uh, but yeah, so let's... I mentioned that co-host. Now, look, there's one of three options here. You got your Robert Hornack. You got your Josh Long. You got your Reed Lackey. Which one is it? Well, let's see here. They're all married, so there's that wife I talked about. Only one of them has a child, though. Listener, I'll let you figure out. I'll give you three seconds to remember which one of those three has a child. 
You're right. It was Reed. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing great, man. I'm feeling silly. I guess I'm That's sorry. It's all right. I love it. Those are my fa- those are my favorite things to do because it, yeah, it's uh, it's always always best to start on a little bit of a comical note before we get real heavy and and philosophical and theological. So, I yes. predict this episode is not going to be that heavy, but here's no, what I think it could solution. be. This this episode, which was your idea. And I don't mean to say that in a blame kind of way, because episode 200 was also your idea, and I loved it. I'll apologize now, though, by the way, just, just to hedge our bets. This could sound like a couple of curmudgeons. <laughs> this one especially, don't you think? No doubt. Yeah. It's like, you know who else is doing it wrong? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we need to uh, be careful about that. Um, Agreed. Because uh, it is the nature of today's topic is such that it's very easy for anybody, Christian or otherwise, to just say to talk about films that can be very insufferable for in a, in a certain way. Certainly. So, um, so what are we talking about today and how did you arrive here? Reed? <laughs> so, um, I, I had really been trying to think about, uh, it's an odd sort of exploration in my head, but I was trying to figure out what was the difference you hear the criticism labeled that a film can be preachy or that a film can have a very overt agenda. Sure. And I wanted to find out or wanted to sort of wrap my head around, which is always easier through dialogue. I wanted to wrap my head around what happens when a film with a very overt agenda still works really well versus ones with an overt agenda, which don't seem to work as well and seem to be more because, you know, we talk on the show and, 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 uh, so I basically said like, Hey, can we talk about preachy films? Mm-hmm. Is how I put it to you. And not specifically those, those types of films that are specifically like faith based films, right. which would certainly be what comes to mind when we say preachy films, but films that have their intention on its sleeve. There's yes. no way of walking out without really understanding like, well, that film really, does not want me to like the death penalty. That film really does not want yeah. me to to like the healthcare system. You know, what whatever the situation that is. That film does not want me to like the Jews. I am specifically talking <laughs> about Triumph of the Will, by the way. <laughs> so, yes, so, exactly. Exactly. That one has an agenda. Uh, no joke. <laughs> and so like what about the films that may be dealing with the same theme? Mm-hmm. But and and uh, this conversation could go a, a variety of different places, but one that is literally coming to mind, like right at the forefront is, and we don't even have to explore this, but I feel like people received moonlight mm-hmm. better than they received Brokeback mountain several years earlier. Interesting. Now I don't know. It's been years since I've seen Brokeback mountain. Um, and I don't know that I would necessarily consider it to be in this category of what we're talking about. But as an example of the exploration that I'm doing of why does why does this film seem to resonate more broadly yeah. dealing with a similar sort of dilemma and subject than a film that doesn't necessarily that seems to resonate more of a niche and and what makes that like exploring the the narrative craft yeah. the the components maybe the timeliness of its release i think that's a big part of it sure what happens that a film will be very well received when it deals with this one thing versus another and then i also and you know this can maybe be done in sections but i was also thinking of there are the films where 
the agenda is so overt mm-hmm. that I almost feel like somebody sat in a room and said, you know what we should make a movie about? We should make a movie about, you know, the death penalty and how stupid sure. it is or whatever it is. Um, and then they just said like, well, what's the best way we can. So, so ladies and gentlemen, I'm, th- I'm talking, I'm talking specifically about a film. I think about what, like 12 years ago now at this point yeah. called the life of David Gale. First off, I, I object to you saying that they sat around and said, what's the best way we can do that? I think if anything, they said, what's the most way we can do that? Cause that is what life of David Gale is, is the most. Yes. No question about it. it it's the kind of film that is, is now I should say up front, and I don't, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm actually an opponent of the death penalty. So I think I am as well. And so, you know, without getting too much into the weeds about the, you know, our personal feelings on it, um, it was also something when I was thinking about this that like, hey, there's sometimes where I may agree with the posture of the film, yeah, and still walk away going that wasn't that was a travesty, an utter waste of my time. Yes, if anything, it's getting me to reconsider my position. <laughs> um, here's here's I'm going to backtrack a little bit because there's a lot to talk about and I'm excited. Here's why I want it because you threw out a few options sure, about what right. this episode could be, and this is why I gravitated towards this one given the nature of this podcast and other podcasts like it um both christian and otherwise actually uh it's very easy to take aim at faith-based films certainly as being preachy right putting aside the specific connotation of preachy Mm -hmm. uh they are often films that have an agenda and lead with that shamelessly absolutely though they might not actually know it mm-hmm. um it seems that a lot of film uh, faith-based filmmakers think that they're making a hard-hitting character drama or something like that and right. it's like no you clearly decided what it is you want to say and you made sure that that is going to be said without any uh obscurity or, or anything like right. that. Like it's right. going to be crystal clear. Uh, and anything beyond that is secondary. And so it's very easy to look at faith-based films that way. But something that Josh and I have talked about in the past is that the idea of a movie leading with its agenda, that is not new and that is certainly right. not unique to faith-based films. It happens every single year. And as it is now September, we are going into the season where we see a lot of that because it's, it tends to be because issue driven films are big Oscar movies. Usually. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, it's worth noting that moonlight mm-hmm. won best picture. Absolutely. Brokeback mountain was expected to win best picture. Sure. But, in, but instead it won best director and moonlight did not win best director. <laughs> so they, they, they switched out. Sure. Um, but, uh, so, you know, those are, and, and I really like that example and I'll talk about why in a moment, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting to talk about why sir. And a lot of it has to do with how a movie is received. I think you're absolutely right that there's, there's a timing element, Certainly. you know, perhaps one of the big reasons that, and by the way, I can, I, I remember thinking that, uh, or hearing that Brokeback Mountain was incredibly well received, mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think looking back, it's a film that is, um, thought of fondly, mm-hmm. but it also is a movie that has, is not part of the, 
it's not really part of the conversation. Certainly it was at the time yeah, and was for right. a few years after that. Right. But it really isn't a movie that's talked about much. It is actually a movie that is, I think referenced jokingly yeah. as like yeah. the gay cowboy movie. And I wish I knew, knew how to quit you and all that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. If, uh, if anything, it might be thought of most as, can you believe what a treasure we lost in Heath Ledger? That's, that movie, yes. and mm-hmm. then a few years later, The Dark Knight, and oh my gosh, can you believe uh, how sad this is? Sure. Um, so to use the, this specific example, mm-hmm. uh, I will say that 2005 and 2016, so there, there's an 11-year difference, and in both cases, we are dealing with characters that are gay in a community that is not Right. And is right. in some cases very hostile towards that idea. Certainly. Well, politically, a lot has changed in that 11 years. No question. And so while I actually think Brokeback Mountain is pretty subtle in a lot of ways, I think there is a certain forcefulness to it uh, because not that I don't think anybody was even really fighting for gay marriage for a legalized gay marriage at the time. I, I think that was, that still, I think case, that yeah. was still a few years off. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of normalizing and destigmatizing, uh, homosexuality mm-hmm. was a bigger deal at the time. Well, I think now it's fair to say that it has been a bit more destigmatized. Like the, sure. the majority of the people in the country are in favor of gay marriage. So it's like, okay, that not that obviously it has not been completely conquered or whatever it is, but the idea, I feel like moonlight, that is a film that doesn't feel like it has an agenda at all. Right. Exactly. And I don't even think that it it could be considered an issue driven film. Mm. I think it is. And people are quick to say that it's all about intersectionality, which is, you know, it's about, a black kid. It's about a poor kid. It's about, right. and it's about a right. gay kid. Like, and he's all this, it's all the same kid. Sure. Right. Um, so I think there is that, but the fact, but to me it's like, but it's so much about this kid mm-hmm. and only this kid. And this is what he happens to be that I think oddly enough for me, if, if moonlight was an issue driven film, which again, it could be argued that it is, but it's the best kind of issue driven film where the more specific it is to this character and his struggles, uh, the less apt it is to make large broad statements about this kid's plight and how similar it is to so many others. It doesn't do that. It is 100%, uh, specific to Chiron. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is usually the best way to, uh, get your point across. Um, sure. I will mention also that Brokeback Mountain lost Best Picture to Crash. Which was on my short list of films that I consider to be in this very agenda-driven, uh, dare I say, preachy oh, yes. idea. And, yeah. and it, that is that is to me a bit ironic. Yeah. Because um, I, I think that you know, and films, it's a heck of a lot preachier and more overtly preachy than Brokeback Mountain. No question. Yeah. No question about it. Um, I think the reason that I do agree with you, I think Broke Mac, I, I often hear Brokeback Mountain referenced in, in somewhat of a more jokey fashion, yeah. even did several years ago, like you sure. know, a while back. I would hear it. This is an odd comparison to make, but I would hear it joked about in a similar fashion to which Forrest Gump is joked about. Sure. Where it's like nobody's really debating 
the quality of the film. Yes. It's just that certain things came out of the film that people seem to find funny to reference. In, yeah. I in mean, I wish ways. I knew how to quit you is a great line delivered very powerfully. Mm-hmm. Nobody's laughing at the line. It's right. just that it has permeated culture, not unlike forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, which has been used sure. jokingly in a lot of movies and Simpsons episodes and yeah, that kind absolutely. of thing. Yeah. Uh, Stand up n- routines. Yeah. 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 Like nobody is saying it's a bad line in a bad film. Right. It's just that after a while, <sighs> everything becomes a reference and mm-hmm. is thus robbed of its power, at least for a yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah. No question it's about kind it. Kind of a sad thing, actually. No, I agree. Um, that's another episode though. <laughs> but, but when I think about like specifically something like a crash, which is dealing so overtly in not only racial issues, but unbalanced, very, ex- very sort of extreme examples of racial issues. Mm-hmm. Cause I can remember thinking my favorite moment about crash. And the reason I would still say, I really enjoy that movie ha- is, is about the moment that has nothing to do with its agenda. Okay. And that's, and admittedly it's the, it's the cover image, but it's, it's the girl who runs into her daddy's arm with all, and, and, yeah. and the plot intersection about, yeah why she's okay and and all of that sort of stuff that's been sort of threaded through that like the reason that confrontation is happening is about the issue but the reason the moment has such a big emotional payoff has nothing to do with that that's how i feel about to me the most powerful moment of the film is the other cover image which is matt dillon who is uh, thandy newton yes uh, in the in the in the car and the reason that she is terrified of him in the moment, despite the fact that he is trying to save her has everything to do with the theme of the film. Right. But I do like that he, what he says is actually very simple. He's not, he just yells, I'm not going to hurt you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which coming from that character, like I, I, I would, I wouldn't blame her for not believing him. Sure. But, it's such a simple idea. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to hurt you said by a character who is being faced very much with the things he's done wrong in this particular moment. Yes, it's convenient, but that's the nature of the film. Um, but yeah, like there's in both cases, you're, you're correct. In both cases, the situations are very specific. Mm-hmm. I think specificity makes a big difference here. I think that, I think that specificity it. of character and story, not necessarily of theme. Right. Because when you, when you look at the films that I would consider to be, when you look at the films that I would consider to be in sort of that preachy vein, the characters themselves are not very well drawn. In my opinion, they're right. not, ve- they're not very fully formed. They don't live outside of this very, uh, confined scenario that they find themselves in. Um, and, and like going back to the life of David Gale, uh, there's a lot of contrivance to how the issue is brought to light that, that that it's not organic. It's not something that just is of this world or of this time or of these people. It's very, uh, again, just contrived. It's something that's fabricated specifically to say a very deliberate thing about whatever issue it's trying to, it's trying to, get its message across about almost every beat of that film feels phony to me. I agree. And that's a great cast. It takes a lot to feel phony. Yeah, but it does every single second. Yeah, no joke. No joke about it. And, uh, and I think that's the thing that really bugged me, but then I would look at a film that, and here's, here's an ironic film to bring up. Um, 
the film that actually got me first thinking, most of it was the age that I saw it at, got me first thinking about that same issue mm-hmm. uh, was actually A Time to Kill. Oh, okay. So, which I would also consider to be a pretty preachy film. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of that film. Yeah. But, so, it, but it's the kind of thing, I think I, was, I saw it when I was like 13, mm-hmm. and I can remember after watching it, I was like, uh, how do I feel about this? What do yeah. I think about this whole sort of thing? And um, so it just sort of started the ball rolling in my sort of reflective, introspective way of how I'm going to examine that issue. But as I'm trying to think about things that would maybe impact me, I think about you, you look at like a time to kill and then you look at life of David Gale, these the death penalty things. But then I think about the power and the resonance of like a 12 angry men. Sure. Where, I mean, 12 angry men is not about the death penalty, but that's what the whole narrative thrust is. Do we kill this kid or do we not? Yeah. And that's, you know, it's not that overt. It's not this dystopian society, but just they're, yeah. they're trying to, if a guilty verdict would mean this, this person's life, yeah. they're going to get the death penalty. And so thinking about a film like that, where the story and the characters are very fully formed, they're very, they, they feel almost painfully real at times, even though, I mean, to get such diverse 12 people, like there's no 12 yeah. people that are that distinct and that different. Yeah. But it works just so seamlessly and so well, and is and feels issue driven. Feels yeah. feels to a degree to be about this broader subject. Um, but I think that what we're kind of scratching at is it's about the attention have have the storytellers, the filmmakers paid as much attention to the characters and the world building that they've done yeah. as they have to whatever. Um, mission message thing that they're trying to express with this particular story. Have you ever seen Dead Man Walking? A long time ago. Okay. But I have seen it, yes. Yeah. Okay, so Tim Robbins, as a person, mm-hmm. is not particularly subtle with his politics or his views. Not at all. As a filmmaker, and I would say as an actor, he makes very interesting choices and very specific choices and often very subtle choices. Yeah. Dead Man Walking is about the death penalty. Mm-hmm. It stars Susan Sarandon. So, like, you've got, uh, I don't know if they're officially husband and wife, uh, but, like, they were together at the time. It right. been, And you've got Sean Penn in there. Oh, like, yeah. You've oh, got yeah. some bre- very politically minded people, mm-hmm. but they all seem to understand we are artists first. Yeah. And we have a story to tell. Right. And we need to tell it honestly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in many ways... What's the best, you know, what's the best way to, to get your message across? Well, simplify it mm-hmm. and make it really, make it impossible to take the other side. Hmm. So it's like, you know, with Life of David Gale, they have to, which, by the way, there's a twist at the end of Life of David Gale that actually negates everything that the film is trying it to really do. Does. It's, yeah. it's insane. It undermines itself. Which it undermines is really itself. Unfortunate. Yeah. But this the the nature of that film is that like oh the person that's on death row is so perfect <laughs> oh my gosh can right. you believe what we're doing to this poor man um dead man walking sean penn's character is not likable no he mm-hmm. absolutely did what was what yeah what uh he is accused of and yeah. what he was convicted for he has a he d- he spends a good portion of the film lying about it mm-hmm. and not 
taking responsibility for what he's done. Right. Right. And is often uh, standoffish, even to the people that are trying to help him. Sure. And he, he tries your patience and yet, and so like, to me, it's like, that is often the people that are on death row probably are the people, they probably did do it Mm -hmm. and they probably are not people you would want to hang out with. Right. So then the question, then the difficult question is, do they deserve to live nonetheless? Mm. And that's the, that's the question of dead man walking. Yeah. And and I like that this overtly political man who is directing the film understands that, no, I'm going to be honest about like uh, my, my film is going to take a stand, but it's going to take it honestly. It's going to earn that. Sure. Right. I'm not going to simplify it. And that's something that I really love about that movie and something Mm -hmm. that I, you know, there are plenty of my, plenty of my fellow conservatives, uh, hate Tim Robbins, but it's like, watch that movie. He is showing such tremendous restraint as a filmmaker that, uh, I will always have respect for him, uh, Mm -hmm. for doing that. Cause that's a film that is, it is, it's issue driven. Sure. No doubt. But it doesn't, and some people might say it feels preachy, but, and, and maybe it is preachy. You do have a character that is actually preaching against the death penalty. <laughs> right. Right. But I guess a big thing is that a movie can be preachy if it feels earned. I would say 12 angry men earns it. Oh yeah. Yeah. By, by committing to its characters and its story mm-hmm. and its world. And versus like, so I think about dead men walking and the next one that comes to mind, a film that I don't think works nearly as well, uh, is another Grisham adaptation, the chamber. So I don't think, which I saw a long time ago, I was sick and watched a whole bunch of Grisham movies in a row. And I don't well, remember the chamber do that well. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it weird how many Grisham films Gene Hackman's in? He's, well, he's, in, the he's firm. in the firm. He's in runaway jury. Yeah. He's in the chamber. That's true. That might be it, but that's three. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's at least half of the big ones. Sure. You know? Sure. Um, well, because at a certain point, it's really funny because Grisham writes about a, about a book a year, but mm-hmm. at a certain point, ho- proverbial Hollywood basically said, we're tired. We're going yeah. home. <laughs> Cause they basically like they, they would make every single film that every book that he put out, they would make a film about it. And then eventually they were just like, okay, I think we're done. I think we're good here. Like, it's very humid in the South. We don't want to shoot here anymore. <laughs> and so then they just, they just gave up and went home. But I don't think that the, I don't think that the chamber works as well. And I think, I think that when you, when, when I think about a film that I walk away feeling feeling manipulated by mm-hmm. i think maybe it does have a little bit of of earning to it this, sure. this quality that like okay well they didn't earn from me even and i keep coming back to this even if i agree with the position and it's something this could you know take it back into the faith-based film conversation you know like i've said about virtually every faith-based film that i've watched not every single one but virtually all of them i'm like i agree with them but this, but this way that they've told the story has has upset me because of just because it's been presented in such a way that I feel to be, for lack of a better, for lack of a, of a more nuanced way to put this, that it's kind of a pedestrian way to go about making your point. And if it's if it's that uh, pedantic and 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 that oversimplified, then I keep maybe it's the devil's advocate in me, but I keep wanting to like defend the other position. 
Well, yeah, because the other position does have a defense. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's, I don't think a jo- I don't think a film has to present every side. A film right. has a point of view. So obviously it's probably going to be more true to that point of view. That's sure. Fine. Right. But to completely negate the other side and act like it can be uh, dismissed in just a handful of lines, like in God's not dead, for example, mm-hmm. um, I think it, it's not being honest. Yeah. I think that's, that's a big thing. And another thing that gets me about maybe any preachy film, but certainly Christian films is that it always bothers me when a film is counting on my agreeing with it mm-hmm. where it's just like, well, look, these people agree with us anyway, so we don't have to work that hard. Right. We're just going to tell them they're right. They're going to be really happy that we did that. Mm-hmm. They're going to feel empowered, maybe even a bit inspired. And uh, that's fine. Now, I don't think anybody's actually thinking that being like, <laughs> hey, guys, we can be lazy. But you can tell when that's what what's happening. Sure. Yeah. When they, regardless of what they might say, they know that they're making it for an audience that's very similar to them. Right. Um, and so there are certain buttons they can push and that will save them a lot of time. Yeah, and it almost it almost borders into pandering at that point. Oh, and, more than almost, yeah. And and it's so interesting to me. So, so, like to talk about the flip side of it, I also get frustrated for the same exact reason when I when I hear it in the opposite side of the spectrum. So, it it can be kind of the easy or the big fish to pick on faith based films, but then I'll think about. And this is where you're going to hear the conversion come out of me sure. because I because I no longer really care for this man's work. Um, it, you'll get the work like of Seth Rogen, where you'll have sure. your your Paul. You'll have your I, and I know he wasn't responsible for for anything but voicing Paul in right. that film. But like, so you get Paul, you get Sausage Party, which he's very responsible for. Yes. Um, and then now Preacher yeah. and this is the end is another one. This is the end. Yeah. yeah. So. So you have him involved in in these kinds of projects, and it all seems to develop a kind of a cadence. There's a, okay, I kind of see that you're about this thing. You can hear that dopey laugh behind every line, (laughs) which I would try to imitate, but I don't think I'd be able to do. (laughs) No. Uh, And and that um, pushes the same sort of, offense is not the right word, the the unsettled, unnerved button. And it really is, for me, I think a matter of oversimplification mm-hmm. where there can be uh, arrogance is not the right word, man. I'm really struggling for vocabulary tonight, but, but there's a, um, there can be a, a pretension where, like you said, th- you, you can assume the audience is just going to agree with me. Yes. Like when I present this point, it's clearly so ironclad or clearly so cut and dried, uh, and I used to get frustrated by this, like when certain stand-up comedians would do this, or when, well, sure. when anybody would, when anybody speaking about a rather complicated issue would say, "Like, see, isn't that very simple?" And it's like, "Okay, well, you're clearly making a joke and a rather yes. clever one, but it's not that simple." Like, it, like, yes. it, 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 if we're going to take a step back and look at the issue, there is no real-world scenario in which the issue you just categorically dismissed the other side of is really that simple. And uh, I remember years ago, Patton Oswalt, who I think since has become more, a bit more simplistically political, but um, he was, uh, he was doing a special, a a Comedy Central special, and he's talking about Bush, so, and Bush is still in the White House, Um, but I think it's 2006, 
And so he says, like, he goes, I was so against the war and so against George W. Bush and like everybody cheers. And then he laughs and he says, he's like, I like how I act as though I'm being really risky. He goes, it's like, I don't care who I piss off in this room full of people I email. Because that's the thing is like, if you're watching a special Mm -hmm. or hearing an album, chances are it is full of people that love this person. Yeah, no um, question. And mm-hmm. so to act as though that person's being risky at all sure. uh, is, I think, ridiculous. And and yeah. I like I still remember that moment from Pat Oswalt where it's like, yeah, good for him. Yeah, for calling, calling that out. out. Yeah, for calling it out. I, I had the same thing happen because I've only just recently, I've been listening to a lot of stand-up comedy recently, um, just kind of gotten into it because it's easy, but, yeah. um, and Netflix has 5 billion specials on their, on their yeah, too many. I think we can up. all agree too many, too many. Yeah. Like when I click on comedies mm-hmm. and most of them are like Netflix, uh, stand-up, stand-up specials, specials, it's like, right. come on, Netflix, you know what I mean? <laughs> I want a movie. Right. right. Um, but I had, uh, stumbled across the work of Bill Burr and, yeah. and so, and, and, and some, and it's exactly that thing where sometimes he'll hit on a subject and you can hear in the room how everybody's just automatically on his subject. Yeah. And I feel like bringing it back into the, to the film scenario, I feel like it can be really easy I don't know. Maybe there's a there's a harder line to this, but it can be really easy for a filmmaker to be like, my audience is just gonna get this. They're just yeah. gonna they're just gonna be on board for this, and because they're just automatically on board for this, I don't really have to work as hard to make my point. I do think that in the case of Seth Rogen, I think it actually is a bit more, maybe not insidious, but a bit more unforgivable. Mm. To assume that your audience is on your side, I don't. Assuming assuming anything in art is probably not great, mm-hmm. but that is maybe a bit more understandable because that suggests that you have built an audience and sure. you, you at least understand who they are. And you know, Kevin Smith been, has been coasting on that for decades at yes. this point. Yes, because he does have an audience. Yeah, and he no knows question. what they mm-hmm. and like his films are just a love fest between him and his audience, mm-hmm. and that's more power to him. He's found his niche. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The stuff about Seth Rogen, and I would say Sausage Party in particular, mm-hmm. and listeners know that I'm no fan of it, yeah. um, is that I don't think he's thinking about his audience. I think he doesn't, I think it doesn't occur to him. Like he's sitting there with his writing partner mm-hmm. and he's talking to the producers and he's talking to the actors and there is not a single dissenting opinion among them. So it doesn't right. even occur to them that the arguments they're making are vi- can be very simply, uh, very easily dispelled. Right. Right. Of Um, course. Not to imply that the points they're making are, are easy to dismiss. It's the way they're making them. That's easy, but they wouldn't know that because they're not talking to anybody that isn't them. Yes. Right. So it is, it's like the the audience thing, but in this case it's, they are not holding themselves accountable. Like Mm -hmm. there's a laziness there. There's uh, this. And I think it's a particularly Hollywood attitude, Mm. uh, of and and look faith-based film is like this too sure everybody Mm -hmm. involved believes the same thing and they and there's an echo chamber quality to Mm -hmm. it um you know you and i are in agreement on most things sure so this episode could be seen as an echo chamber yeah yeah Um, no doubt there are probably points that could be brought up to you and me that we're not thinking of or that we are bringing up but not representing well right like it can happen what I will say is that this is a small podcast and there are two of us in the room. We're recording and then this is going to be posted a few day, in a right, few days. Right. A film, however, 
There are hundreds of people involved. There are various levels of approval that need to happen. Sure. And right. so the sheer number of people that have to have uh, either actively ignored or been completely oblivious to certain points and certain uh, mm-hmm. counterpoints uh, is, I, be, I think, makes it a bit less forgivable. I sure. mean, obviously everything's right. forgivable, but uh, I'm less inclined to cut it slack yeah, than I, I would. That. Yeah. two people who are obviously friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're, you're right in the sense that, uh, at a certain point, I guess I would just wonder for anybody, for, for people who make a film like the life of David Gale or Seth Rogen and his work, I guess I would want to know, like, is your goal exploration or is it exhibition? Right. So, so, uh, so uh, I love, I know we're getting to music for a second. Um, I love Paul Simon. Sure. And uh, Paul Simon's we were work. At that, you were both, we, yeah, you, we, you we were, were both at that concert, concert yeah, yeah, along yeah. With, with Josh. With Josh. Yeah, 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 yeah. But none of us went together. No, we just all happened yeah. to be there, which was really great. Um, but I, one of the things that I've loved that he's said several times is he, uh, his songs are an exploration. He, mm-hmm. he considers himself an explorer. He likes to explore a certain territory. And what he, so I'm going somewhere with this that'll tie back to the films. He, he says as a creative thinker, um, he will either approach a song lyrically or he'll approach it musically and then it'll just develop out of that. He said, but when he goes to finalize the lyrics, he usually tries to start with something that is true, something that's irrefutable, something that you can take a step back and just say, well, that's true. Yeah. And one of my favorite examples of it is the opening lyric, or it's not the um, opening lyric, but it's the opening lyric of the second verse of Something So Right, mm-hmm. where he says, they've got a wall in China, it's a thousand miles long. And it's like, okay, well, there's, all right, well, where are you going with this? But whatever. Yeah. And, and, and so, he, so he says this, it's just this tangible fact, just this simple thing, but then he goes from there to, and I've got a wall around me that mm-hmm. you can't even see. And now we're getting into the intangible, the right. exploration, the, the philosophy of those kind of things. Bringing it back into the conversation about films is I feel like a lot of times people will act like they're exploring, but they've already got the ending in mind. Yeah. So they don't start with something that they think is true and yeah. then see where that takes them. Yeah. They start with something that they want to say and go backwards of like, well, how do we, how do we get there? How do we get to this thing that we want to put out into the world? How do we get to this message that we want to put out in the world? So you look at something like a sausage party and, and, and yeah, we can talk about the echo chamber aspect of it. It's conceivable to me that, that somebody was just like, Hey, why don't we, you know, this is kind of the, the thing that we want to say, this is the idea that we want to do. Why don't we, uh, why don't we make an animated movie that's like really hardcore adult and 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 just do something that's totally like yeah. the, the anti-kitty Disney animated movie? Yeah. You know, South Park did it first, but whatever. <laughs> did it first in 20 years before. Yeah, <laughs> odd that no one brought that up. <laughs> and every point it makes, South Park did it first and way better. Yeah. But whatever, money. There's money to be made, and uh, we all think we're so clever. <laughs> Sorry. It, it, the, the thing that gets me more than anything is just how original Sausage Party clearly thought it was being. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, you know, in, in everything yeah. mm-hmm. from an animated standpoint, where it's like, yes, it does feel, it does look visually like a Pixar film, like a DreamWorks film. So there is that. The idea of it right. being a high budget, high end. Mm-hmm. 
South Park episode, uh, but that's what it is, except, of course, South Park has rarely been that simplistic. Yeah, and that's what I've always, like, you want to talk about something that nearly every epi- episode, you want to talk about, like, getting preachy, like, they'll dive right in. They'll, yeah. Like, South Park will dive right into the heart of the controversy, but there's a there's a cleverness to it. There's something that I've never quite been able to put my finger on, on why... South Park is, and maybe it's just the simple fact of like, I, I consider them to be smarter, broader thinkers, even though I will often disagree with, with a conclusion that they draw. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a difficult to chart territory of exactly what, what lands on something that seems to work really well and what lands on something that is, is, uh, it's just uncomfortable, yeah. but not uncomfortable because it's challenging me. It's uncomfortable because I'm almost like frustrated by the delivery method. Yeah. Um, I, on Battleship, on most recently on Battleship Pretension, I was talking about Bojack Horseman. Now, oh, I haven't seen that yet. Okay. Is that, yeah. I think it is maybe the best and most honest depiction of self-destruction, self-hatred, depression, really mental illness. And like, it's very sympathetic to that, but it's also very honest about how difficult it can be to love somebody mm. who deals with those issues. Wow. Because within that, there's also a lot of self-centeredness. Mm. And despite Bojack funny, uh, horseman being very funny, uh, it also is incredibly dark and very, you know, there, there are seasons that end with like images that are just so beautiful or heart wrenching mm. and you just want to reach into this animated, uh, show and hug this horse man. <laughs> um, but at the same time, but the next moment he might say something that is so self-centered and so self-serving right. that you're like, Oh, Bojack, why can't you just be yeah. better? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, right. So, I mean, it, it, it's virtually unparalleled in my mind. Mm. Um, but it gets, it gets political occasionally. Oh, okay. And its politics are so shoehorned in. Mm-hmm. And what's more, I think they're dishonest. There's an episode that is about abortion. Now, of course, I have very specific opinions about abortion. I am sure. pro-life. Right. But honestly, like... I, as a conservative Christian, I'm quite used to seeing movies and TV shows that do not mimic or do not echo what I believe. Right. And I can still acknowledge that they're great, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. Um, now, I do feel passionately about abortion, but at the same time, I've seen abortion handled in other movies and TV shows. And it's not that it's not a big deal to me. It's that it feels more earned and more organic. Sure. Okay. But there is an episode where this married couple... One of them is a dog voiced by Paul F. Tompkins named Mr. Peanut Butter, uh, <laughs> who is, and he's a very positive character. Mm. Um, he's always upbeat. He's like a dog. He's oh, always mm. upbeat and just really happy and, and very encouraging of people. Uh, and then he's married to a human woman who's a little bit dour at mm. times. Okay. And uh, voiced by Alison Brie. Ah. Oh. So they're married. They've been married for a while, and then she gets pregnant. Okay. And so they they talk about what they want to do. And she says that she wants to have an abortion and he is supportive from the word go. Now here's the thing. If they were to have an episode 
where he was a little bit iffy Mm -hmm. on the idea of abortion. Sure. On the concept, he's very much pro-choice, but like in this instance, like, well, they are married. They both, they have a lot of money. They can absolutely raise the kids in a perfectly fine home, but they might just not be ready for it. Uh, And they, and the episode was spent with them going back and forth. And even if they arrived at the abortion, I would feel that's more earned. But here's the thing, Mr. Peanut Butter, I abs the character that they have cra- this is season 3 that this happens. Okay. By the time we get to season 3, the character of Mr. Peanut Butter, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but <laughs> his character, I absolutely positively believe he would be thrilled at the idea of being a father. Mm. Thrilled. Mm. And even if he, even if he eventually, and not even eventually, even if he relatively quickly arrived at, you know what, it's, it's your body. It's up to you. Even if he arrived at that, um, I, I believe that to be honest about that character is to have him be resistant a little bit, but of course they can't Mm. because Mr. Peanut butter often does things right. Oh, okay. and so we need to show that this guy that we have, he might be a little bit overbearing. He might be a little bit annoying, but he is such a positive character as opposed to selfish Bojack. Right. right. Um, that like we can't have Mr. Peanut butter ever for one second resist this idea of, of it being anybody but the, the mother's choice mm-hmm. and that, even the father, even the husband should have no say in it whatsoever. Hmm. And that's the thing is like, so they recognize that if this, if they, they can't have Mr. Peanut butter be that thing, but they haven't earned through by creating a, in my opinion, great character, sure. but they have not created a character that would arrive at where they wanted him to arrive at. Hmm. And that moment feels so clunky to me and it hasn't. And oddly enough, it has nothing to do with their conclusion. It's that they had an issue. They have a stance and they are going to make that work and they're going to make it obvious. Mm -hmm. And they've, they, in this past season, they had an, uh, an episode about guns and they had, and within that they had an episode about women and the way the country views women. And I think the conclusion that it comes to, certainly suggests that they have never talked to conservatives who are Uh, pro-gun control, uh, who are anti-gun control, um, about why. Right. Um, and that's the thing. It's like, it's, it's crazy to me that this show that is so right, like almost flawlessly. So when Mm. it comes to depicting honestly, what mental illness and depression and self-destructiveness, self-destruction, um, can look like, that it almost feels like they, it seems as though they feel that they need to be political. Like we have a platform and we should probably do this. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and the moment they do that, they start being less honest. They start getting preachy and it just, and it takes me out of the show Mm -hmm. and it makes me for a moment forget how beautiful I think the show actually is. Mm, Um, And then as inevitably happens, they will often drop that political thread in the next episode. And then it's back to it being uh, an incredibly insightful show. See, okay. So you've just struck on something that's made me think of, of, a, of an element of this conversation. I wasn't really uh, prepared to go into. So I apologize if this is, is a little uh, clunky in my getting it out here, but well, if you, I'm thinking about the idea of a, a push or pull to be preachy. Sure. 
well, that's usually audience driven because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about when we, when we think of the term preachy or preaching, we're thinking about a man on a pedestal speaking to a congregation, right? Right. And the congregation, you know, the, 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 the pastor or the preacher speaking to the audience there's this relationship that is either going to be based on the the pastor's got to sort of uh, give the audience what they want, mm-hmm. lest they rebel, sure. or he's got to provoke and challenge them, yeah. lest they be complacent. Yeah, and so what that what what here's where I'm scratching at, and again I apologize if this is clunky, is when a film or a TV show or a story begins to get preachy. Maybe that's something where they're almost too concentrated on audience reaction, positive, sure. negative, or otherwise. Yeah. They're, they're, because I'm thinking about, like, we've talked about Life of David Gale. We've talked about some of these, uh, uh, some of these other films. Another one that I think of uh, that I also am not a fan of is John Q. About, like, uh, oh, yeah, I never sort saw of, it. Uh, it, it's, it's related to health insurance stuff. Yeah. But, um, but, uh, but it also has that sort of same kind of feel where everything feels, to me, a bit contrived, a bit too easy, too simple. Uh, I mean, that's Denzel, who's a very competent, capable yeah. performer. Talk about a great cast. And, and um, but... You, as the storyteller, are uh, maybe going into that moment saying, like, well, this is the reaction I want from the audience. Yeah. This is this is how I want the audience to feel about this thing. And like what you were describing with BoJack Horseman, which, again, is a show I've never seen, but, uh, well, we can't have the audience feel this way about this character. Yes. Versus... Or about this issue. Or about this issue. Versus, well, what if the story takes us there? Yeah. What if that is where the story takes us? What does that mean? And yeah. let the story and the characters sort of sort of play themselves out. Did you happen to see Glow? Yeah, I saw Glow. Okay, so uh, which I loved, by the way. I loved Glow. I, I I didn't know how I felt about it the first couple of episodes, but by the time I got like into the trenches, I thought it was great. So, how did you feel about going back to that that abortion thing? How did you feel about how they handled that moment? I think it felt completely earned within the world, and I believe the characters would come to that conclusion, and I think they handled it with the proper amount of weight. I completely agree. And one thing that I'm, that I'm feeling as we're sort of talking about this is they kind of took a different tack because she's very conflicted about the decision. Yeah. She herself is very conflicted about it, but then you got Marin, who's such a biting, you know, acerbic wit, and him sort of... Uh, out of the side of his mouth, commenting to the lady at the abortion clinic and, yeah. and playing that up. And it worked as a kind of a reverse tactic. Yeah. It was, in, it was, it was an interesting approach to the subject because they didn't play for the melodrama that I felt. They didn't play for that. They take this character who is by his very nature and by Marin's, you know, off screen personality as well, yeah. uh, sort of thrives on, on a bite, a sort yeah. of a raw bite to it. And, uh, and they utilize that in that moment for him to express a very extreme, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously very sarcastic, but very extreme presentation of that issue. And, and it kind of worked for me in that because it was a different, it was a different sort of, and, and like you said, it came out of the characters. This yes, is who those 100%. characters are. And, and I feel like if somebody wants to, I guess I would advise, uh, not that our listeners or anybody else has asked for advice, but if I, if, if I advised, if somebody wanted to do that, um, I would, adv- I would advise the, the more exploratory sort of element to it. Like, let's start with something 
that's maybe a little bit more overt, on the nose, irrefutable, and then just see where that takes us and see what happens from there as opposed to, well, we need to get – to this place, we need to get to this logical conclusion yeah. about this issue, or about or about this thing, and how are we going to get there, and how are we going to? It's like the the I know I'm beating up on it to pieces, but Life of David Gale so manipulates every component to just yeah. to just a an an unbelievable degree that there's no way any of that would ever coalesce or, or coincide, and then. Um, with the other films that we've talked about, Sausage Party, or even uh, God's Not Dead, there are some... It's like everything about the construction of this fictional world and the construction yeah. of the characters that inhabit it is so attuned to getting to the conclusion that none of it feels real and yeah. none of it feels earned versus something that would maybe start with that as its premise and then and then allow the characters to move around in that world and explore it. Like maybe somebody does this or maybe somebody does that. What would this character do? Would this character resist that idea despite the fact that they're overtly liberal? Would yeah. they be resistant to that? Would a, would a, um, you know, a conservative uh, see things a little differently if they were challenged by this other right. side of the fence and just let the characters kind of explore it? Because as, as you and I have talked about uh, off mic and I think on the show as well, that, just because you may generally land in a certain pocket, uh, one of my frustrations is that the moment that I tell anybody that I'm working with or that I'm, you know, if I say it on a show or something like that, that I'm a Christian, well, there's automatically a ton of assumptions about yeah. how I feel about any given issue without talking to me about it, without asking me about my experiences or my thought processes or anything. Well, naturally, I'm going to assume all of these things about how you feel about every issue. And I feel like. There can sometimes be pressure, both implied and overtly stated, that, well, you're dealing with this issue, so you have to deal with it this way. Yeah. It has to come to this conclusion. Yeah. And if it doesn't come to that conclusion, there'll be social media hell to pay. And, or there'll be some sort of like backlash to like, well, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And I think sometimes a preachiness to these things can be driven. Uh, also by just the need for an audience to feel a certain way, either to stay on board with you or... Yeah, it could be preemptive. It could mm-hmm. be like this, uh, or maybe a precaution, this idea of like, okay, I want to make sure that people don't think I'm this thing. Right. Or that, or I need to make sure that, like, it could be less about the characters. Mm-hmm. I'd say the, the first step towards preachiness is when you stop caring about these characters. I agree. I, not so much not caring about them, but like, they become secondary Mm -hmm. Um, pawns pawns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just like they are either helping or obstructing the point that I have to make. But like, I think it, I think it also has very much to do with the way, like what you are trying to do, what you are trying to say, Never mind the story you're telling the world you're creating, the characters you've created. It's you. Mm -hmm. And usually when that happens, you'll find the characters start to all sound alike. Mm-hmm. And they all start to say the same thing and the characters that don't agree start to sound alike and yeah. they all say the, they all say the same thing and it's notably less developed. Yeah. Uh, this has always been a problem for me with uh, Aaron Sorkin, ah. especially when he talks politics. Mm. Um, he, in West Wing, after watching it, uh, watching all of it, I discovered that, oh, there are a couple of Republican characters that are, that are, um, 
allowed to to speak their mind and not be seen as as negative um my mind goes to ainsley hayes ainsley hayes absolutely Mm -hmm. but she also works for the white house Mm -hmm. and her and that's the thing is when it comes right down to it ainsley hayes gives our main characters an opportunity to look very magnanimous uh (laughs) right you know like also she's not a politician Right. right. And so like, so Aaron Sorkin will give, will let her voice her uh, opinions. And sometimes she has like the upper hand in an argument. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's great. I love that. Um, but when it comes down to Robert Ritchie mm. played, I think wonderfully by James Brolin, I don't blame the performance, but like, right. you know, the thing that bothered me at the time is that everyone said like, Oh, Robert Ritchie is supposed to be like George W. Bush. And it's like, yes, he sure is. Who, who's Bartlett supposed to be like, <laughs> Oh, the ideal. Right. Okay. Got it. So we are right. having the ideal here being a liberal versus the harsh reality. Sure. Being the Republican. Right. 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 And like that bothered me so much. And that to me was the essence of what could bother me about, uh, about, uh, Aaron Sorkin is that I feel like, he had something he wanted to say and he Mm -hmm. needed to make sure that it would be said the best way possible and that the other side would often, not always, but would often be represented in the worst way possible and the most, and, and so easily defeated. Somebody that I go to, I, I I hear what you're saying about Aaron Sorkin, even though I love West Wing, but I totally understand. Oh yeah. The, the the other person that my mind goes to is, uh, is Ryan Murphy, Ryan Murphy's, uh, work in like specifically like Glee. I've seen very little of his work, unfortunately. Oh, um, that that may be for the best. Okay. My apologies to his fans if there's any listeners that are fans of his. But um, I I feel that way about virtually everything he's done. I think American Horror Story, as is typically the case with genre. I mean, I feel like horror, sci-fi, and fantasy can get away with a lot. Yes. And you can be preachy with it. Exactly. Easier than drama or comedy. Twilight Zone is frequently very preachy. I mean, very overtly preachy. The recently departed George Romero was very preachy and very political in his films. Absolutely. But I do think, you know what's funny about it, it, it as we're sort of exploring this topic, um, which we have been for for nearly an hour now. But but I think one of the things about that may work in fantasy and horror and sci-fi is that you kind of have to concentrate on world building. You kind of have to yeah. concentrate a little bit on and and the ones that don't work as well are the ones like my mind goes back to uh, to Paul, which I didn't I didn't like that film almost at all mm-hmm. um, because I feel like it had a very interesting possibility an interesting premise that then it chose to just go to all of the cheap conclusions and the cheap yeah. jokes um but i feel like it, it, getting back to ryan murphy and kind of what he does is uh, i feel like that's why american horror story has been more successful than well i mean glee was wildly popular yeah um but uh, but i know american horror story i think is his longest running uh, show yeah. that he's, um, I'd have to do research to find out about that. But my impression is that American horror story is the most popular thing, most successful thing that he's been able to do. And one of my frustrations with his work is that it has tended to be, uh, pretty, I even heard him say him directly speaking to somebody who was auditioning for him on a, a show called the Glee project where they were trying to find new cast members for Glee. Mm-hmm. 
And I even heard him say, because one of the people auditioning was a devout Christian, and I heard from the horse's mouth Ryan Murphy say, I feel like we haven't done justice to, we haven't been fair to Christians Hmm. on our show, and I would really like to be. So I hear him say that, that I'd I'd really like to be fair to that that demographic that we haven't yet been to on the show. Well, then when that character comes on and they, they make that character a Christian, I'm with bated breath, excited, like, yeah. this is going to be great. But it, it fell into the same rhythm. It fell into the yeah. same same pattern, which made me feel like, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't have that much to do with intention. Maybe it very much is execution, because he, yeah. sh- he sure seemed sincere about wanting to get it right. Yeah. But, again, if you lead with the message that you're trying, or if you lead with the point you're trying to make, yeah. Then now suddenly you're using narrative as a kind of a debate, and it feels like a trap. Yeah. It feels a little bit like, uh, again, manipulation. Like you're just like, well, now I don't really know that I can can follow this rhythm. I can't go on this journey with this character because this character's not real anymore. And I do think that you know. So let's let's take this back to to Christian film, which is so mu- which is so much about this type of thing. A big. I do find there to be a lot of intersection between preachiness and intention, Mm. as you just mentioned that like, Oh, Ryan Murphy, he might've had every intention to do justice to a Christian character. Sure. Well, I don't, well, good for you, but that only takes you so far. I might have every intention to, I don't know. What's, to, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of something that needs to be done around my house, <laughs> but we had a handyman do almost everything. Uh, <laughs> but like <laughs> the last thing we have to do is a uh, spray for termites. So, you know what? I might have every intention <laughs> of spraying for termites myself, but unless I actually learn how to do it, who cares about my intention? Mm. And in fact, my intention done in a poor way, um, could make things worse. Sure. Right. In fact, right. it's almost a guarantee it will. Yeah. Um, and so that's the thing is, is the next step. Like if you have a message, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But if you say anytime someone says like, I have a message, what they're saying is I intend for this message to get across. Right. All right. right. That's fine. But you got to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. And step one is you need to recognize that after, if you if you create strong enough characters, I've said it on the show before. If you create strong enough characters, I know it sounds pretentious. I know it sounds like something really stupid out of a screenwriting book. If you create strong enough characters, they will tell you yes. what they're going to do. Yes, you know, back in high school, back when I would write scripts that are probably horrible, mm-hmm. I wouldn't know because I will not look at them again. <laughs> um, Usually, uh, I would write one or two strong scenes, mm. like climactic, important scenes that I was like, okay, these are, these are the big dramatic and character beats. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, so I've written three of these. I kind of know the, the, the climactic points and then I'll start from the beginning and start writing it. And then I find like when I get like, okay, the first climactic scene, it all seems to fit. The second one is like, huh? I've not written the characters in such a way to arrive at this scene, Mm. but I still like this scene. So what do I do? I could change the characters, you know, go back over the last 60 pages or so and change them. 
Or I can say like, well, I've spent way more time with the characters in these 60 pages than I did with the characters in this two page exchange. Sure. So I should probably be truer to the 60 page characters Mm -hmm. and rewrite this scene. Yeah. Or assess if it needs to happen at all. Mm -hmm. You know, like that is being true to your characters. Now, again, I'm still sure that those scripts are terrible, but, (laughs) but the point is like, it's something I realized early on and I'm, and I'm happy, honestly, I'm proud of my younger self Hmm. that I was willing to sacrifice something right that i was re- willing to sacrifice my intention mm-hmm. in that case and even in that case it was a dramatic intention right, right. um but i feel like that's that's uh, an important element is you have to sacrifice the idea of your your message getting across loud and clear sure there's right. always the possibility that someone might not take it right yeah exactly which is scary yeah exactly but that is the possibility um you have to sa- have to be willing to sacrifice full likability for characters that you want people to like. Right. right. Um, to me, like the 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 gold standard is Mike Lee, the mm. the British director Mike Lee. He is the most. I think he loves his characters so much, and he loves them too much to lie about them. Mm. So we have characters that are sometimes annoying, but often very charming. They are endearing but often repellent, Hmm. they are human beings and he is willing to go where those characters go. Right. And he's made movies about abortion. Hmm. He's made movies about, uh, race, uh, with secrets and lies, Vera Drake. Um, but he, he always leads with character first. And Mm -hmm. I honestly feel like if he wanted to make a movie about gay marriage or something like that, um, it's like, okay, that's what I'm, that's what my movie's going to be about. And then he starts crafting these characters and yes, there's a lot of improvisation in his films, but like, but then you have actors that are locked into their characters as well. Yeah. And I'm fully convinced that let's say he gets about 30, 40 pages in to his script. Uh, and if the gay marriage angle isn't really working, I'm fully convinced he'd be like, all right, it looks like I'm making a different film. <laughs> right. Right. Um, that's, that's the exploratory nature mm-hmm. of what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so you're a writer. Yeah. You know, uh, what have, and you're a writer who has intention, mm-hmm. you know, it yeah. might be dramatic. It might be thematic. It might be both. Sure. Um, how do you fight against the temptation to be preachy? Um, well, it's funny cause I just, I just finished a, a, a script that dealt, dealt with, uh, events a very specific event in the life of Christ, mm-hmm. which when I talk about preachy, like, That's it. Well, well, there it gets, you know? Um, and I tried very hard, you know, uh, who knows if I succeeded or not. Um, no. the, 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 those f- small handful of people who have read it uh, have, have been very complimentary of it, but how I fight the resistance to, to be preachy is, I try to find an element whether I'm dealing with, and this was the real challenge because I'm dealing with the Lord, you know, like, yeah. like, so, so for me, it's like viewing the Lord as a character that I am in a way, I'm, I'm using this word very deliberately about the writing process. I'm manipulating their yeah. actions. I see, I know because I'm detailing events in their life that I gleaned from the scriptures, I'm still manipulating the rhythms and the beats of, of how they navigate through those and how I flesh those out. How I avoid being preachy 
is by just simply trying to ingest as much as I can about what that situation means. So, um, so for me, it's, it was very much, even though I had that chapter of the gospel to, as a template, as Mm -hmm. a guideline to, to look at that moment and say like, well, why is, why is Jesus doing that at that moment? Like, why is, why is he going there in that moment? What would drive him there? And there'd be some days where I would spend, you know, nearly all day off and on trying to think about it and not land on anything. Yeah. And then maybe a week would go by, and all of a sudden I'd be like, "What if he's doing this? Oh, maybe he's doing this." And then yeah. and then just sort of write it down. But I would try to actively resist. I need him to do this yeah. instead. I need him to uh, to go and be this thing instead. I would sort of reject outright that that any character was going to going to do something because I needed them to do something. I would just instead. Um, have as a general framework, uh, I would like to get here because this is the next beat in the story. Yeah. But how do I get there? And just start letting ideas bounce around. And some of them would, and, and you mentioned it earlier about like the characters doing the work for you, some of it would bounce off and it would immediately ring untrue. Yeah. It would immediately ring like, well, that's, no, that, that, that doesn't feel right. And a lot of it is very instinctive. Um, but I think that the work you have to do is you have to actively say no to any anything you'd say like but i need my character to do this i think that's yeah. how i do it anytime i that question comes to the table of yeah but i need my character to do this yeah. then i utterly reject that um and i say like okay but what would they do yeah it really i mean if you want to look at it a, a certain way like if you are treating your characters worse than you would treat your friends Mm. Or people you know. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, no, 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 I need my friends to do this. Right. So I will manipulate them or just plain tell them what right. they're going to do. Right. Anybody would say, you're a bad person. <laughs> right. um, and, you know, but but people do it very casually with their characters. Like, But you realize that, of course, these characters are going to be 100% real and right. they're going to be in some cases our friends sometimes our enemies sure but they are going to hopefully be three-dimensional to the audience for two hours mm-hmm. or if it's a TV show years yeah yeah you know and so you really should approach them as friends acquaintances co-workers mm-hmm. um, and use that as a template like not only well how do people I know act but also how do I want them to act and how does that work it's how does that work its way into my life and my interaction with them mm-hmm. am I a manipulative jerk <laughs> am I a dictator or am I content to let them be who they are mm-hmm. um, and then and of course yes there there are things I might prefer that they do and maybe I'll communicate to that that to them and then look at how they might respond. Sure. Perhaps that's how your characters would respond to your intention with the script. Um, so yeah, it's, I find that that's something I've only recently been thinking about is like approaching your really approaching your characters with as much love and as much exploration and as much honesty as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. And I know some people will be like, but that's just chaos. Here's what I'll say. And you were talking about genre earlier, Mm -hmm. a big element of genre. This is because I read a lot lot about genre theory as I was writing about Christian social drama. Oh, right. Is that when we think of genre, we think of, yes, iconography. Mm -hmm. Um, We think of certain stories. Well, of course you can't, you can't have certain stories without characters making very specific choices. Right. Like 
characters and genres aren't usually that three dimensional. Like Mm. there is a, they are predisposed to doing a certain thing. Now within that, you might be able to develop them so that they, so that you understand why this person is doing a certain thing. But you know, if you are working, I'd say if you're working in drama Mm -hmm. and maybe in comedy, I feel like at that point you need to be willing to be exploratory. If you're working in film noir, well, (laughs) <laughs> for it to be a film noir, right. there are a few things that need to happen. Otherwise, you're not in the genre anymore. Right, and right. maybe you're willing to sacrifice that. Or if you want to write a film noir, then that I'm way more accepting of that. Sure. For the same right. reason that like with horror, yeah. you know, genre does mask a lot of, uh, a lot of artificial, a thematic artificial artificiality. Sure. Um, because everything about genre is intentional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everything is like, well, we need to have it look like this. <laughs> we need right. to have the characters do this. And sure. this needs to be the theme that we arrive at. Oh my gosh. And yet like, like thinking about, uh, one of the most manipulative filmmakers in history who everybody would probably agree is a genius is, is Hitchcock. Yeah. So I've been watching a lot of Hitchcock lately because this year I'm trying to get through all of his films. Mm. Um, I've got some work to do because I only just made it up to notorious. So I've okay. still got about maybe 20 films to go. But, um, so, so, but one of the things that I've noticed is he would have a tendency characters would get frustrated or would, uh, or characters, actors would get frustrated with him because they're like, well, why am I doing that? Why am I, why am I walking outside and looking up at the window? And he's like, because I need you to look up at the window to, yeah. you know, like, cause, because we need to draw your attention up there and it doesn't yeah. really matter. That's why he coined that phrase that, you know, the, aud- the actors are cattle, yeah. um, at which, you know, that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, but I think that, Again, it gets down to um, when you, he, I believe, was very calculated and his work was very calculated, but I think he was still very much um, and sort of an exploratory filmmaker. I don't, I don't feel like he was really trying to, because he loved his characters. He would even say he loved his villains. Oh, yeah. That, uh, well, speaking of Notorious, like Claude Rains is a shockingly sympathetic villain. Yeah. All three, I was thinking as I, because I just watched it this week, and I was thinking as I watched that, uh, that's a film where each of the three of them Mm -hmm. have a nuance to them, to the degree that four or five different people could watch the same movie and root for a different outcome. Yeah because they're all fully formed and fully fleshed out. And so when we're thinking about this idea of how to to not be preachy and we've beat up on some bad examples with like very agenda-based messages, but you know, there's there's no limit to how many preachy films have in existence. I was thinking also of like Tomorrowland, which is a film sure. I adore because I'm on board with the message, but it's undeniably very preachy, particularly yeah. at the end. Um, so I but I think that when but we But that's sci-fi but it's sci-fi. So, yes. So, the, so there are some passes. There yeah. are some things that you can kind of, kind of get away with. But I feel like, I feel like we've touched on a couple of things that I, that I can I can sort of land my head on. Like specificity is key. Making yeah. sure that we, uh, if you're trying to tell a story that that it's more of an exploratory mindset versus a. Um, building a case like a debate, um, you know, uh, stacking, uh, files and evidence together to sort of present this, this agenda based case. Um, stories aren't really the, the ones that work the best aren't really framed that way. They're, they're more, uh, they're more about 
well, what does what does it mean for this character to be in this place, and how would they respond to being in this place? What yeah. would they fight for? What would they fight uh, uh, against? And uh, and then just allowing that to be where it goes. And you said something earlier that I think is a big deal about avoiding preachiness is being okay that some people are not going to understand everything. Yeah. And being okay that some people are not only going to not going to understand everything but might not agree with everything. Yeah. And being being all right with saying, "Okay, maybe maybe I'm not going to close the sale. Maybe I'm not going to land the 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 exact uh everybody's going to walk out of this film and vote this way versus that way." But um, when you're okay with that, you might actually land on something even bigger, which is making people think, yeah. making people look at a perspective in a way that maybe they didn't they didn't see it before, and engage their emotions and engage their thought processes. As 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 flawed a film as I think it is, that's kind of what A Time to Kill did for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, maybe because of my age, but I walked out of that thinking like. I should probably give this subject some consideration and yeah. then and then went off from there and did my research and all that other sort of stuff. But I think that when the films deal with an agenda or deal with their uh, their message in a way that just makes people not uh, as about to say makes people think, but then you get into the oh, this will make people think if right. I twist the knife this way or whatever. Um so yeah, I don't want to get stuck back in the weeds on that, but just an idea of you can be exploratory with it and be okay that that people might walk away with different conclusions about what you said. Yeah, uh, a thing that I've been thinking about lately is that old, uh, and I even said it on BP recently, um, a thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that Roger Ebert idea that film is, is a machine that generates empathy. Mm-hmm. And if you are committed to having your audience empathize with your characters, that's different than sympathize. Yes. Sympathize often means you might pity the character, but chances are you like them. Mm -hmm. Empathy doesn't necessarily mean likability. Right. It means honesty. Mm -hmm. And even if you're being, it's one of the reasons that why I like moonlight so much Mm. is because they're being very specific about this character and he had he and I have very little in common, right? But somehow, because they have fully crafted this character, I feel like I know him, mm-hmm. and I've felt and in my own way, I've felt some of the things that he's felt. Right. And people are able to think abstractly enough to say that to recognize that not everything has to be a one to one comparison. Sure, I might like in my own way, I might have felt some of the things that he's feeling, not the specific things, obviously, but enough that it's like, this feels like a full human being to me. Mm -hmm. I empathize with them. And if you empathize with someone, you might actually pay more attention to the theme. You might be more open to the themes of the film. Sure. If you create empathy, but like, grabbing somebody by the by by the collar and shaking him and saying like you must agree with me right there's right. no empathy there you're certainly mm-hmm. not gonna you're you're you'll create animosity but, right um but yeah like there's no going back to sausage party like it's a it's a it's a film that is trying to get people to reject certain notions of religion mm-hmm. there's a film called the invention of lying Oh, the Ricky Gervais one. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Ricky Gervais is a known atheist, Mm -hmm. but there is a moment where his character's mother is dying, Mm -hmm. and he wants to comfort her. Right. And he he lies, in the context of the film, he lies about this idea of heaven. Mm -hmm. 
and it brings her such tremendous comfort in her last moments and she dies peacefully. She's not scared anymore. That is a man who is willing to entertain the notion of why people would embrace religion and has tremendous empathy right. for that idea. Right. He may, it may be in the context of a lie and he might still be arguing in favor of atheism, but he, I'm so much more willing to listen to what he has to say because in that moment he was willing to listen to me. Mm. He was willing to mm-hmm. listen to the people that he disagrees with and recognize that, oh yeah, people don't hold this belief in spite of me, like, right. or just to spite me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a willingness to be honest and empathetic and trying to create both in your audience, I think goes a long way to, to keeping your film from being preachy while all the, while at the same time, selling your message better. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Through creating an openness in the audience. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually kind of counterintuitive, but, uh, but that's kind of the way it is. Um, sure. We should wrap up at this point. Um, I think this has been a very, uh, a very good discussion and one that could that can absolutely continue. I mean, (laughs) you know, we're talking about themes, we're talking about intentionality in, in, in art, uh, and how best to, to make that work. Um, and so, uh, listeners, you're welcome to weigh in, uh, in the comments section. Uh, perhaps you disagree with some of the stuff that we said here, uh, in which case you're welcome to, uh, to weigh in. Uh, so you can do that at more than one lesson.com. You can email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. Uh, let's see, when does this go up? This goes on with there. Okay. So if you live in the Southern California area, uh, on September 23rd in Artesia, California, you can go to Alpha Omega Con mm. and you will see me and Reed on a couple of panels that I'm moderating there. One is about the Alien series and the other is about uh, the films of Tim Burton. Uh, and then on top of that, I will also just have a table uh, for more than one lesson and for my book worth watching. Um, so you can come on up and say hello to me. I think it costs like 10 bucks at the door. <laughs> so not a big deal. Um, so go to alpha megacon.com to, uh, to find out more about that. But, uh, in the meantime, uh, read, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, the easiest way is, uh, is probably through Twitter. Uh, I'm at Reed lackey on Twitter. And then, uh, the show, of course, the fear of God is at the fear of God. All right. Sounds good. Um, so, okay. I think we're done there. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Reed, thank you so much for, for being here and for coming up with this great topic. Oh yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for entertaining it. I appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. And we'll get you next time. Bye.